Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Welcome to the second talk in our series on removing the stigma surrounding mental health. Um, thank you for coming and, and spending some of your Veterans Day with us. Um, and thank you, everybody on Zoom, for joining us as well. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask is we're going to have several guest speakers today. If you guys could please, um, if you have any questions that come up uh, during, if you want to write them down, and then at the end, we'll have a Q&A session. Um, so um, that would be helpful if you could just wait wait till the end. Um, I want to introduce myself first. My name is Maria Shabla, and I'm the Financial Assistance and Resources Coordinator here at the EOD Warrior Foundation. Uh, I am an Air Force veteran. I was in the reserves and activated for Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, I'm also the daughter of an EOD, an Air Force EOD veteran. Um, with my position at the foundation, I have the pleasure of helping EOD families um, that are in crisis situations with financial grants. I also host the podcast here. Um, so why are we here today? Um, we're here because the EOD Warrior Foundation made a commitment to help remove the stigma surrounding mental health to include invisible wounds, wounds of traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, toxic exposure, and moral injuries, which prevents our warriors from getting the care that they need and deserve. That's the reason that we're here today. And to come together as a community, to listen to each other's stories, to find strength in each other, and to come to understand that mental health is just as important as physical health, if not more. Now I'd like to introduce the chairman of the EOD Warrior Foundation, Greg Middleman. For those who don't know Greg, he is a veteran of the Air Force EOD community and a retired Lieutenant Colonel. He has served on the board of directors since the EOD Warrior Foundation's inception in 2013. And prior to that, he served on the board of directors of the EOD Memorial Foundation. He is passionate about all EOD personnel, veterans, and their families. He has a wide breadth of USAFE, joint and combined levels of EOD operations experience in conventional, nuclear, biological, chemical, and IEDs. Welcome, Greg. Correct one word. I spent two days putting 35 steps in you safety. It actually did sound good. Okay, sorry So nobody starts quizzing me about you safety because I know nothing. I'm a pack <laughs> Um, that's just me. But thank you all for being here today. And for those of you on the uh, out in the microwaves, thank you for joining us as well. The EOD Warrior Foundation over time has uh, devoted ourselves to the betterment of the community. That's what we're here for, whether it's uh, financial grants, whether it's scholarships, uh, whether it's uh, hope and wellness and trying to get people to the right kind of uh, retreats, whether they be fun, whether they be oriented towards your mental benefit whether they be introducing you to transcendental meditation, whatever they may be, it's something that is for the betterment of the community. We will strive to continue to do that. And one of the things that we've been, uh, we've been battling, as well as the greater veteran community, of course, is the issues that arise from long extended periods of combat that we're used to since 9-11. But we also know that we have, with our other era veterans within our EOD community, be it... Um, World War II, which you went far between now, unfortunately, but certainly Korean and the Vietnam era. 
we're all EOD warriors, we're all EOD family, regardless of those eras, and this foundation encompasses and puts our arms around all those people. But one of the things that we're really looking at now that affects this more current uh, era is the issue of uh, suicide, sometimes stemming from post-traumatic stress or, or, or traumatic brain injuries, sometimes not. Uh, so one of the things that we've undertaken to go with the things we've done in the past from taking care of those families who were victims, the remaining people from suicide, um, and, and doing the health and wellness things is that we wanted to try and we'll never get to the total root, but we wanted to try and understand a little bit better so that we can refine what we are doing and make the things we're doing more beneficial and more effective in trying to take care of our family. So we decided, along with our partner, the After the Long Walk, and Jeff Truex is here with us today, uh, that uh, we are partnering with a, uh, a group of researchers right now, uh, a group of independent researchers. They are consultants to us. This will be expanded in time as a phased process to a larger group of researchers. This is composed of veterans. Um, some of you may know Mike Vining. Uh, is heavily involved as a researcher on this and a, and a couple of other veterans. Uh, myself, I'm considered to be part of the team, as is Jeff. Uh, Nicole Motzik, our executive director. Um, we have two other individuals that are here today, and I'm going to introduce them in just a second, that are going to talk to you a little bit more about the track and what we're doing. But the way this is going to kick off, and today's sort of an early announcement about this study, is that uh, they're here this week to create, start creating an initial baseline of understanding for them and about the EOD community. They know the school, they got a tour to see what students train and how that uh, formulates who they become early on in their career. They're talking to a lot of different veterans, uh, had some real raw and open conversations with some different people, uh, all to, to create a baseline of understanding so that once we get into uh, starting to do some focus groups around the country, uh, that when we talk to uh, different people, we can formulate the right kinds of questions and appreciate the answers a little bit better so that ultimately we can maybe come up with some answers on what we can do better. Um, so today, uh, they're not gonna talk so much in detail about the study, but what they are gonna do is talk about um, some comparisons and differences between moral injury and, and PTS, and um, ultimately tag into some terms that may be a little bit more familiar to you. Um, in, and I don't want to spill the beans or anything, but uh, a lot of y'all are familiar with the term of post-traumatic growth. Um, and ultimately, um, MC will, will come around and uh, and bring that to bear and how some perhaps that's a, that's a part of this as well. But what I do need to do is grab that piece of paper right over there so that I can read your bios. Um, first off, uh, first presentation is going to be with Matthew Iganoe, excuse me, Iganyama. Uh, enlisted in the Navy in February of 2009 as a diesel mechanic and was sent overseas to the USS Essex and then later the USS Bonhomme Richard, uh, as he points out before it burned. <laughs> where he was stationed in Sasebo, Japan. Matt participated in multiple joint service multinational exercises through four consecutive deployments. And in February 2015, he transitioned from active duty to the Naval Reserves. And by, two, by December 2018, 
Matt graduated from Brigham Young University, Idaho with a BS in psychology. In October 2021, Matt was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy Chaplain's Candidate Program. He then graduated from BYU Provo with a Master of Arts in Chaplaincy in April of 2022. Congratulations on that, by the way. As a developing subject matter expert on the moral injury literature and socio-cultural research impacts, Matt continues his preparation for the chaplaincy and has already helped numerous service members in the U.S. Armed Forces in ministering ways that respects the individual spirituality and existentiality independent of religion or faith traditions. So, Matt, you're on. Um, first and foremost, while I'm getting this set up, I'd like to thank uh, Greg, the UB War Foundation, for putting this on and letting us come here to speak with you all today. Um, for my piece, it's going to primarily focus on moral injury. I did an extensive literature review, so I looked at research of moral injury from 2009 to 2020 in October. And then since then, I've continued that exploratory search in the research of moral injury. Um, part of my thought process, which I can really get set up. So this is essentially moral injury in the military and insights for the EOD community. What I took away from this research and how it can apply to EOD techs. So first off, I want to throw a few numbers at you. First one being during the global war on terrorism from 2001 to 2021, the ratio between military suicides and combat fatalities was approximately a 4.276 to 1 ratio. That means is for every combat fatality we suffered overseas, 4.276 server members took their lives here. That is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Last year, the VA Mental Health Services annual budget was $10.2 billion. That same year, their suicide prevention annual budget was $313 million. So clearly, these resources have been allocated, but what we're doing just isn't working. It's not cutting it. So why am I here? I do, after, as Greg said, after I joined the Navy in 09, throughout the course of my career, I began to see something that I couldn't quite identify. I knew that there was something around myself, the sailors, the Marines that I was with, that it just, something just wasn't right. And throughout the course of my career, through the active duty component and the reserves, three of my friends committed suicide. One was in the Army, one was in the Air Force, and one was in the Marine. Knowing what I know now about moral injury, there is no doubt in my mind, all three of them, to some extent, suffered from moral injury. I know that I find that term moral injury out a lot, and I promise we'll get to it, you just have to bear with me for a moment. If you've read Sun Tzu's Art of War, you might be familiar with this quote. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, then not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. The bottom line is, moral injury is an invisible enemy we simply do not know. So how do we define it? How do we put words to this phenomenon? Essentially, from the research, moral injury results from, an, results from an individual being exposed to events that involves their perception, the individual perception of either personally perpetrating, i.e. commission, witnessing, i.e. omission, or being ordered by a leader 
I mean, direction to violate their moral values. And again, I cannot hit on this enough. It is individual perception here that is the key. It's not something for me to say to the individual, oh, this is what you should do and this is what you should believe and this is how you should feel about it. It's up to them to say for themselves, no, this is my experience. I know myself better than you do. It's for me to say how I should feel about these experiences. So to kind of pull apart the differences between moral injury and PTSD, I generated this chart to help visual, visually explain from a theoretical standpoint how we can pull these apart. For example, moral injury in the research has been seen as a traumatic violation of personal values, like I said earlier, whereas we know PTSD is a traumatic threat to personal well-being. Furthermore, moral injury is based on morals and ethics, whereas PTSD is that fear and adrenaline fight or flight response. Researchers have characterized moral injury as a spiritual soul wound, whereas we know that PTSD is that physical psychological. And then finally, again, moral injury is something that you perceive, whereas PTSD is something that happens to you. Additionally, there's been research conducted to examine the differences neurologi neurologically between PTSD and moral injury in the human brain. So if you look at this top picture here, you can see that from an individual suffering from PTSD, a lot of the regions that are activated are in the inner parts of the brain, the reptilian brain, that fight or flight response. But if we look here at a picture of somebody who is suffering from moral injury, a lot of the areas are higher functioning in the cortex of the brain that results from higher cognitive functioning, which is indicative of the perceptual piece of moral injury. So to kind of give examples of what this might look like um, for an EUD tech, how they might have encountered this during the course of their career, um, I pulled examples of commission, omission, and direction. So an example of commission for an EOD tech might be um, an EOD tech trains team leaders, but later finds out that one of the team leaders dies in an IED explosion. Their thought process might be, you know, maybe if I would have trained them better, they, they wouldn't have been killed. An example of omission might be an EOD, EOD tech sweeps an alley for IEDs, but misses an EFP hidden in a wall that later hits a coalition convoy. From what I understand, EFPs didn't come out of the initial um, push into Iraq, and they came later. So that wasn't something that they knew was a threat until it was a threat. And then for direction, a security element for an EOD team is pulled off mission for a perceived lower priority mission. I mean, the security element is supposed to have your back, but this cat over here is saying they got to go somewhere else, but what about me? I'm supposed to be making this area safe. So the first lesson learned that we pulled away from the scientific research is that moral injuries are profoundly human phenomena that cuts across time and culture and has specific and immediate effects. So what I mean by that is a lot of the examples we pulled from were from GWAT veterans. But we wondered, is this a phenomenon that exists just in GWAT, or does it expand past our modern day? So we looked at examples from Vietnam, Korea, World War I, World War II. The earliest account from U.S. history that I found was from the U.S. Civil War. And in this account, a Union officer was leading his brigade on an attack against a Confederate position on a hill. And off in the distance, you could see this other Confederate officer readying a counterattack to hit his man in the flank. And he knew if that counterattack rolled through, he was going to move out of his guys. So he turns to his sharp shooter and says, I want you to shoot that Confederate officer. Sharp shooter raised up his rifle, fired. Confederate officer dropped off his horse, and the Confederates kind of dispersed that. <clears throat> so as this assault was proceeding, 
the union officer turned to his garbage digger and said, hey, let's go check on that Confederate officer because he was a brave man. So the union structure got to the spot with Officer Ed Bolin. They found a face down. So rolled him back over on his, to his face up. And then the officer, that Confederate officer, under one word before he died. And that was father. <clears throat> because that Confederate officer was Union Sharpshooter's son, who had gone south before the war. And this Sharpshooter was understandably so distraught about what he had just done. He ripped off his coat and charged single-handedly against Confederate lines. And he was shot and wounded and fell. And he could have stayed down and crawled to safety, but instead he jumped right back up and he kept charging by himself. Where he was, again, subsequently shot and killed. What that experience demonstrates to us is that moral injury doesn't have a six-month wait time. It, has an, it can have, and sometimes does have, immediate negative effects on the individual. Our second lesson learned from this research was that warriors are not just human, but meaning makers. And they don't just stop meaning making once they put on their uniforms. So it's our job to discover what helps each individual warrior to both make sense of and meaning from the chaos of war. This points to the importance of meaning making in the healing process. So that term meaning making pops up a lot in this book. So what is that? What does meaning making mean? Essentially, it is what the individual who sees this traumatic event, what meaning they attach to it. What if, for example, if an EOD tech watches one of their buddies die, an understandably traumatic experience, what type of meaning are they going to place on their buddy's death? What type of meaning are they going to place on their own life moving forward after that event? So five key takeaways from the research that we have found, I hope we hit on this um, enough is that moral injury is not the same thing as PTSD. It's not. The second point is that increased self-empathy and self-forgiveness leads to less severe moral injury in these individuals. Third point is, oh, I'm so sorry. I missed the last one. The third point is that positive meaning-making, the ability to make more positive um, associations within the individual for those experiences is associated with less severe moral injuries. Um, fourth point is that healing from moral injury is an interdisciplinary collaboration um, due to the ethics of morals being existential principles. And early on in the research, a lot of these different um, disciplines tried to claim moral injury as their own. Doctors said, hey, this is our field. And then the psych said, no, this is ours. And then you got chaplains saying, no, 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 this should be our field. What they realized pretty quickly is that they couldn't handle it on their own, that they needed the help from each other to actually tackle this issue within the people that they were seeing it manifest itself. They needed the docs, they needed the sites, and they needed the chaplains together to tackle this issue. And then the final point that I think is most pertinent is that peer support is being explored as a viable healing process. In the same way that the sites aren't going to be in every single unit and the chaplain's not going to be able to see every single EOD tech, those two techs that have been working together months and months overseas, they know the experiences that they face, they know the challenges that they've had, they know each other better than anyone else, I would say. Once they are able to have that dialogue, start talking to each other about these challenges and experiences that they've had, that can be very therapeutic, that can be very helpful in helping them to start coming out of that in a more positive way. So the course of this research, I, I was not in EOD tech. I had no experience with the EOD community when I was active duty in the service. I had no idea what I was getting into it. 
I turned to a friend of mine, Nathan Peterson, who was an army EOD for 16 years and said, hey, I need some help understanding what it was like for you being an EOD tech. So we sat down for three hours and he pulled out these insights that he, he's allowing me to share with me today. First on his night that he shared with me is that EOD techs are highly intelligent problem solvers. He said, essentially, if you sit an EOD tech in a doctor's waiting room for longer than 15 minutes, they're going to start taking out their resume and pulling stuff apart. Because that's just who they are. The second point he said is that when he was out in combat, you get this huge adrenaline dump into your system. And once you leave that environment and you transition back to the civilian world, there's nothing quite like it again. And some, he said, some EOD techs that he knew chased that adrenaline rush to try to get back to that adrenaline high. And the third was a powerful personal insight for him um, as we had continued this conversation. First point being, um, if I can't figure, if I can figure out anything, that's the kind of person that, that he said EOD techs are, I can figure out anything. I can figure out anything. Why can't I figure this out? Why can't I figure out why my family life is the way it should be? Why can't I figure out why my marriage isn't how it should be? The second point is, if nothing I'm doing is working, then I must be the one who's broken. If all these common denominators that are going wrong in my life, it must be me. Then his third point that he had to try to help me understand is, in the field, after doing everything you can, you blow things in place. If you can't move do, do the ordinance and the munitions, you, you have to blow it in place, from what he had told me. And so this last, last point was, maybe the safest thing I can do for those around me is blow it in place. And from this line of thinking um, that he had, he had drawn out of his mind with, with this conversation that I had, he said, maybe this can help <clears throat> to understand why there's such a high suicide rate within the EOD community. So ways forward, we talked about kind of the bad, that moral injury can have negative outcomes, and often it does. But um, with proper guidance, it can also have positive outcomes. Now I'd like to turn the time over to um, Greg to introduce Dr. Egerton, who will talk more about the positive outcomes associated. Can we check in? I just want to check in with the Zoom people and make sure they hear everything okay. How we sound on, on Zoom? You guys picking up everything? Thumbs up. Yeah, it's real good. It's good. Okay. All right. Um, thank you, Matt. So this next bio, I'm going to read to you briefly. Let me caveat this. This is a, uh, an interesting gentleman. The fact that he's very friendly and devoted himself in this community into uh, witnessing, kind of witness, and, and get an understanding of, uh, of who we are as EOD techs, as EOD family. And um, I, I really feel like he's sort of a no stone unturned kind of person. Um, he's also very humble. Um, so I want to... When I read his bio to you, you'll find less about who and why he is as a doctor and all the things he's done, but you'll find that there's a lineage and a linkage uh, that's obviously the passion that he has for his family. As his bio reads, Dr. M.C. Anderson is an independent applied research consultant. His primary specialties are assessment, selection, training, and development for 
individual ethical integrity, and leader character in teams and group. MC has had to relearn how to read, write, walk, and talk, as well as interact, having multiple major cranial and intracranial surgeries. The main reason he keeps fighting through chronic cranial bone and nerve pain is because his wife, Sarah, and their daughter, Corinne, have taken a risk on keeping him in their lives. Their family is humbled by and grateful to the members of the U.S. military veteran community for their sacrifices and suffering at home and elsewhere around the world to help live and let us live in a country that's free. So uh, apart from uh, the devotion he has for his family, it becomes evident on the kind of person he is, because I know we all feel that way about our families and the foundation does about you all. And by the way, his daughter's a Cracker Jack uh, snowboarder. <laughs> MC? Thank you. It's good to be here with each of you. Uh, just so you know, I have a bad ear, so if I miss what you say or talk too loud, I'm not trying to be rude. Also recovering from a major TBI uh, in this past um, year or so, if I get confused, uh, you can just blame it on that. Um, and before we go any further, it's Veterans Day. Uh, so for those veterans who can hear my voice, um, welcome home, happy Veterans Day, and we're glad you're home. And for those who are abroad, come home. Uh, we love you, and we want you to get home safe. So with that in mind, Matt, and Matt is outstanding. Uh, I hope Big Navy picks him up as a chaplain soon, but not too soon. So a little bit of background on uh, my family is and how came to be in this space is I grew up in a military family. My father, uh, he was a code breaker during Vietnam for the United States Navy. And then after he went and did hard things with his fellow code breakers and others overseas, he returned home and he decided that he was going to go to college and study history and then he switched after he went to college matt and fell in love with my mom and uh he became a trainer of unconventional warfare in the united states army and he loved it and after that he finished uh, a long life of service to our country uh, with the dod as an uh, ethics specialist. And uh, that's kind of where I initially began to understand very simply what it meant to love our country and serve our veterans because our veterans love our country and they serve our country. And one of the things that my father would do at training because he took me to the trainings um, from the time that I was six years old to 16 and also my younger brother, Morgan Dallin Ingerson, who I miss and love, he uh, would take us to these trainings. And in these trainings on my father's course, if you died three times on his course, you did not go to combat and you did not make rates. Uh, so it was a very serious course. Well, after the first time that everybody um, had been killed on the course, he would gather them around in a circle and he would say, now that I have your attention, I learned what I learned in Africa, and I want you to come home. 
So that's why we start with coming home because many times with soul wounds, like Matt indicated, uh, our research has been very clear. And I'd like to um, thank uh, Dr. J.E. Chatterson and Mike Vining and Doc Wood and Chaplain Banta who aren't here right now because these insights are not my insights. These insights are the team's insights. So with that in mind, um, so if we can go. So many times to make this very simple on distilling these differences, even though they are co-constitutive or comorbid where they hang together is they're Let's do a little conversation where those of us out there who are listening, who want to help their veteran EOD tech, who want to help the veteran who might not be an EOD tech, but maybe the EOD tech wants to help his or her friend who has served, who might be suffering from a soul wound. So Matt, you want to go back and forth. You can represent the person who wants to help and I'll represent, you know, okay, let's look at this scientifically. Isn't this a personal problem? Yes and no. Why can't they just deal with it? They are and they aren't. What were they thinking? Do you really want to know? Okay. Well, I believe everybody in this room wants to know. And I believe that everybody listening wants to know. So let's actually look at one of the luminaries of the field and what she has to say about soul wounds and what the answers to these questions are. Okay. So this comes from an amazing book, Soul Repair. Um, by a scholar who I just, um, I'll say it this way, my wife knows I love her and don't misinterpret me, but I have an intellectual crush on Dr. Brock's work. <laughs> so with that in mind, Jeff, can you read this quote for us, please? Moral injury destroys meaning and forsakes noble cause. It sinks warriors into state, states of silent, solitary suffering where bonds of intimacy and care are impossible. It's it torments the soul. It's torments to the soul can make death a mercy. The suffering of a moral injury is grounded in the basic humanity of warriors. Thank you, Jeff. Again, this is not a medical phenomenon. This is not a psychological phenomenon. This is not just an existential phenomenon. This is a human phenomenon altogether, like what Matt said. It's not one specialist that is going to help this individual. It's all of us responding at once. Okay, so let's re-examine this. And by the way, having been trained as a first responder when I was young, we don't all want to go to the victim at once. But what we do want to do is say, how can we help? And we're already thinking that. So let's go through these same questions again, Matt. Isn't this a personal problem? This is a human problem. Why can't they just deal with it? They are trapped in an invisible crucible. Crucible, one of those things that the old people used to use when it came to the pharmacist in olden times when they would thrush and thrush and thrush it down. What were they thinking? More than their psyche is at stake, their existence is in grave danger. Okay, so with this in mind, Matt, I, I just want to make this really clear. Um, I just want to say thank you again for everybody who is listening right now, because if you're out there, you can help. And here's the interesting thing, the EOD tech and the EOD community 
from the preliminary reconnaissance that we've done, they're open to it. They want it. They're ready for it. So this is a search and rescue mission to free our brothers and sisters in arms. They need to be released from the existential spiritual prison that they don't know that they can escape. I'm reading these because my memory is like Dory right now since the accident. What is the difference between the cost to produce an EOD tech and the value of that EOD tech soul? And by soul, I don't imply anything religious, just the invisible stuff that matters, that keeps people going. Some souls are so lost that their body is alive, but they're not living any sort of life. And this quote is very powerful from, from a Utah veteran, and he knows who he is. Saving our own is the most meaningful endeavor we can do, period. That's from an individual who was in Chihuahua. Next. Okay, so to be very simple, since I've already um, gone too far with time, one of the things that nerds sometimes do is they get interested in words. And one of the interesting things about the word trauma is if you look at the history of that word, it comes from a certain Greek word. But if you look at the word that that comes from, trauma doesn't just have one meaning, to pierce. Trauma has two meanings. It means to pierce or to burnish. So we're learning something there from the word itself. We're learning that there are possibilities that maybe they might not be able to see for themselves, but that we can see for them. Maybe instead of their lives being over, their futures being over, maybe their past lives are over, but it doesn't mean their future lives are done. And maybe let's look at post-traumatic growth that way, is the possibility that, well, I had this past life and I no longer have it, and now the life I have is hell. Maybe my future life doesn't have to be hell. Let's think of that as post-traumatic growth, because it's not normal growth. It's post-traumatic growth. So with that in mind, this is very important. If there's anything in this entire time that we're interacting together that would be critical, it is to notice these three moral emotions. If you have an individual in your life, an EOD tech, or you as EOD techs have other EOD techs in your life who are expressing guilt or shame or anger, any combination of those, at the same time, that is a cry for help. Many times, people misinterpret those moral emotions as stay the heck away from me. But this is actually what we've discovered is their paradoxical way of saying, I need help. Help me. We don't condemn the person who has a compound fracture who is crying out in pain and say, hey, just suck it up and deal with your compound fracture. We don't say somebody who's having an aneurysm who can't even speak, oh, you know what? So you've got a headache and your hand's shaking. Just deal with it. So why are we telling the veterans when you are feeling guilt, shame, and anger, hey, just pucker up, buttercup, shut up? No, maybe it's time because they're home that they can speak with each other. And for those who are feeling these emotions from things that they have done overseas that they're not supposed to talk about with people outside the military, make sure you're only opening up to the people with the right clearances on your EOD tech community. With that in mind though, post-traumatic growth could look like something like this. Instead of these guilt, shame, and anger, remember, if we hear those three, 
Stop, look, and listen. Just listen, hear them, understand them. Let's put our toolboxes away. As my wife would say, the other doctor, Anderson, the one who saves lives, let's put our toolboxes away and just be with them. And what if they could feel forgiveness, self-respect, peace? And then they're safe. Of any community that works hard to make people safe, it's the EOD tax. That's their modus operandi. But then they can't get themselves safe, and they're asking for help in this unusual way. Then stop, look, and listen. With that in mind, we'll finish with this. There's outstanding research by Tedeschi and Moore. Just fantastic research out there. And this is no criticism of the docs, the sites, the chaps, and all those other people, the family members who try desperately to save their loved ones, to rescue their loved ones. This is no indictment of any organization. This is just saying we need to do differently and better and be more unconventional. What if we can help them find personal strength, better relationships with others, new possibilities that they can't see for themselves, appreciation for life, and spiritual and existential change. With that in mind, finish with this last story, true story, um, shared with me by a, um, an individual who, let's just put it this way, he's absolutely a veteran and story is absolutely true. There were a father and son during Vietnam. They were in country. And while they were in Vietnam, the father was out on a mission. And he got surrounded by enemy combatants, he and his team. And so what he did is he did everything textbook. He retreated to the high ground. The unfortunate thing is the enemy combatants surrounded and were closing in on the team. The son was at the same base and was a helicopter pilot. The son came into the radio room and heard the distress from the team and said, that's my dad. I'm going to get him. And the, he went to the commanding officer at the time and said, I need to go get my dad. For whatever reason, they had a back and forth. Suffice it to say that the son ended up going with his crew. As the helicopter, one helicopter was going to get this team that was under fire. The son was communicating with the dad and said, you can't pop smoke. You can't let the enemy know where you are. You're too surrounded. What's another way you can let me know where you are? And the dad said, it's time. My, I've had an orange piece of, um, and this is my TBI brain coming through with my Dory brain, but basically it's those orange things that are plastic and hard that help reflect light. And he had sewn one of those in his booty hat. And he said, son, I'm going to flip my booty hat upside down. And that's how you're going to see me. Well, sure enough, the son is like, I've got you. Here we come. And this is a story where the good guys won. So the son got the team. The son and his crew got the team on the chopper. They got back to base. Both the dad and the son made it home from that tour. The point in that story is very simple. It can't just be us who want to help you EOD techs and the EOD community. You've got to want to help yourself. And this is going to be a very hard thing to say. But please, please, to quote Dr. Lewis, healing is hard work. But to quote Chaplain Banta, let's help you live the rest of your life. With that in mind, please, if you need help, 
Show us your orange. Flip your boonie cap. We're here for you 100%. Thank you, MC. Um, I'm going to, first off, again, thank you for what Maria asked you early on. And probably is pretty difficult if you got questions, particularly if those two great agrees. To, to sit on them, but we're going to ask you to do it for a little bit longer. Uh, we kind of want to incorporate and talk about all those things at the end because we have another speaker today that we're honored to have. And um, he's joined by his very supportive and uh, charming wife, Jolene. Um, but I'd like to introduce Raymond White Jr., uh, former Army EOD tech, um, who is going to share some stories from his various deployments and how he has been able to deal with his invisible limits. He's sharing a story in the hopes that will inspire other EOD techs who are suffering from their invisible wounds to reach out, excuse me, for help. Ray enlisted in the Army in 1996 as an MLRS crew member in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and re-enlisted for EOD in 1999. His EOD career saw him stationed at Fort Carson, 761st EOD, Kirtland Air Force Base with the 21st EOD WMD, Fort Polk, and then back to Fort Carson with the 764th and 749th. Retired in 2017 as a first sergeant. His EOD career included five combat deployments to Afghanistan from 2002 to 2014. And uh, Ray, thank you for being here with us. I guess the reason I'm here is to uh, put a face to an issue. Tell my story. My audience is the warrior that is silently suffering, the leader of that great warrior, his and his loved ones, his support group. And uh, so I want to say I during my time, I lost 20 personal friends during the war. And unfortunately, that has been surpassed by the number of friends who have taken their own lives. And, and it's an issue. And it's an issue higher percentage-wise in EOD for reasons who knows, but we're trying to figure that out. I've got some ideas, but um, so I want to start with uh, one of my stories. So I had the 20 EOD techs that were killed, but this is the story of Jerome Brown, who was a sergeant in the Army. I think it's my fourth deployment, and uh, you know, we were at a little firebase, Terra Nova. I was trying forever to think of that, and I just thought of it today. Um, the name and so you know there's only about a hundred people at this firebase and um, so we, at that time we were supporting conventional army and so we go to chow with them and we know them and you know they were our security patrol and all that and Sergeant Brown I was a platoon sergeant that deployment and uh, I would rotate with teams and run for them and give them break and so the day before, we had an IED call out in this area, and Sergeant Brown took our team out there um, in the vehicle, show us where it was, and, and he's showing these pictures. He, he was leaving in about a month, and he had twin girls, you know, and he's so proud. He was leaving in weeks, and he, he just couldn't wait to go meet his kids. And uh, it's a first-time father. And so we go, or it was actually one of my teams, and they um, they ran the incident. Well, the very next day, we got a call to the same area, 
And so we're going out, and when we're getting close, we're boom. You know, and a lot of times the Afghan army would mess with the IEDs and whatnot. And I'm like, you know, they probably messing with it and went off. We got there, we realized quickly that it was a different scene. And for whatever reason, Sergeant Brown and our interpreter Freddie had gone down and there were six uh, Afghan soldiers all around a 40 pound YPOC, you know, typical IED that must have had a tilt switch in it. So 40 people around this chair and it went off. And so just parts, pieces everywhere of people. And the, uh, so now we got another issue because at that time, usually many other IEDs, this one will bring you in, you go do this. And, and so I had to clear the area before we could process this scene. And this is one of those scenarios where you got to take that bad stuff and you got to put that back here somewhere because you got a job to do. Because this could get worse. You know, there's other soldiers here. You clear it, they come in, they die, you know, then you're living with that too. And I'm sweeping and, you know, I just remember everything so well. His torso was pretty far out, like 50 feet away in a hole. His rifle was 300 meters away after we probably found Freddie in the canal. Uh, and most of the other pieces weren't big enough to identify anything as. And so I'm having this battle in my mind of like, that's where you, you got to put it away. And I remember we had to stay overnight. And at this time, my son was about, I think, 25, my oldest son. And I'm seeing all these soldiers um, that are dealing with this. And this, you know, I've had these stories. I've been through this. I did that in 2002. This was like 2012. Um, and I just see it again. And I'm looking at all those kids. They're warriors. They're soldiers. They're freaking kids. And I wish I could just give them all a hug and say, hey, it'll be all right. But I knew it wouldn't be all right. I've been there. I've done it. And I'm looking and thinking, rest of their lives, if this is all they see, they're going to have the rest of their lives. And I think about Jerome and his little girls who would never meet their dad. And his wife, who's a single mom at that point, a widow. And just the wrongness of it. And trying to square that. We finally get back to our fire base the next day. And I told my guys, like, if this doesn't affect you for the rest of your life, you're a psychopath. This will have to be dealt with. You know, this this doesn't go away just like if you get that compound fracture. If you don't go to a doctor and get it set and fix it, then it'll never be the same. And then I went to my room 
I taught behind my whoopee door and I just sobbed. Hoping that I wouldn't just then get another call because then that has got to right away go back into the box. And uh, I don't think ever before or since, unless they made me do it in school, for whatever reason, I wrote a poem about it, trying to process this one thing. Because I think prior to this, I didn't let it in as much when I was out there. And, uh, but, you know, it's like a pressure cooker. It's eventually going to blow. You got to do something with it somehow. I'd like to try to read this poem. Today at the scene was a horror to see. There were brains in the dirt and a tongue in the tree. Sergeant Brown in a hole 50 feet away. I did not want to see this today. The bomb so strong took away all his features. This horrible war took away his whole future. A week ago, he just had twins. His death will destroy his family and friends. And this is just one of the eight that died in the dirt they lay there by his side. The linguist we pulled from the canal, the smell of the dead, it truly is foul. I sit in my tent and reflect on the day and ask myself, is there no other way? Is the cost too great? I make invocation. Is there no other way to protect our great nation? When I get home, I'll be mean to my wife. I'll fight with her in the house when I have strength. I won't mean to do it. She will abhor it. It's hard to adjust, and I'll hate myself for it. How do I know? Because it's happened before. You can't leave behind. It affects the war. The family says, suffer, don't you doubt it. Most back homes just don't think about it. Holidays, birthdays, anniversaries too. I can just call and say I miss you. Card after card for my youngest son says I miss you, Dad, and I want you home. We'll make it through like we have every time. We don't give up. We're just not that kind. I took an oath and I made a vow. Soldiers don't quit, and I sure won't now. At times it's hard and I don't understand, but I'll carry on and do all I can. I write this poem down on my knees. Please, dear God, give me the strength. Love and service always from first last wife. So that's one story from one day. And so it's why I'm here today. It's, it's a hard thing to do this. But it's important because I've been through this process and I'm still going through this process. I want to talk about to leaders. One of the things that changed my approach to things was one day I got a call in the middle of the night and, and there was a fellow soldier who was struggling and had been struggling and they said, hey, Ray, you know, said his name, like, we need help. He's trying, you know, 
been aggressive. He's trying to fight everybody's out of control. I think he'll listen to you. So we go out and I see him. He's he finally find him in this ditch, no shirt on. And, and I looked at him and called his name and, and his shoulders just slumped and, and he was done. And I went and put my arm around him and we were going back and we're sitting on the side of this house and he's feeling totally crappy about himself as a loser. Meantime, I'm going through a lot of this inside. I'm struggling. I feel like every area of my life is a failure. My job, my family, myself as a leader, I felt like a fraud. I had a pretty good reputation and I was well-respected, but it was imposter syndrome for me. And, and he said, I just don't know how to do this. He's like, how do I be a Ray White? How do I be a man dog? And I thought, man, I have failed him. You know, as a leader, you want people to respect you. You want them to think you have all your crap together and that, you know, I'm somebody you can follow. But what's more powerful is if you say to your guys, hey, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time, you know, but I'm doing something about it. I'm going to counseling. I'm going to work through it. And that's when I change my approach as far as that goes. You know, don't you can be honest, but, you know, we talk about the stigma. The stigma is that makes you weak and it's exactly the opposite. It makes you strong. <laughs> I used to ride bulls. I've jumped out of planes, assessment, selection, gunfights, tons of IEDs. I would do that 10 times over easier than standing here, being vulnerable, being honest. But that's the way you remove the stigma is that you talk about it. And, and so I share my story, however hard it is. I almost backed out of this. I can talk about it in small groups, but now you're talking about standing up in front of whatever audience and, and it was getting to me. I was going to the grave of being a complete jackass to my wife and a chaplain that was going to be here that couldn't come and called in sick. And I thought, maybe I got a cold too. Like, my anxiety, I carried my guts and they were knotted up. The reality is it has taken me much more courage to do this than any of those things I've ever done. Um, after I retired, I got the easiest job I've ever had, making the most money I've ever made. And I couldn't even get that job completed. My wife just said she'd come in the room and, and I'm sitting on the bed crying with my gun in my hand. And I'm glad she's there that day. I say she's my angel that kept me alive so somebody knew what they were doing, could help me out a little more. And she said, no, if it's worth it, just come on. Let's get this fixed. Let's deal with it. 
and I had good support. And so I went to a neurologist, and he referred me to Mark's Institute for Brain Health, and then I've done much, much more since then. It's an ongoing process, and and one of our big hurdles is our pride. When we have been this thing, and then we're not this thing, and we have no confidence, I have pretty significant traumatic brain injury, and I didn't understand what was going on with me. And, I mean, I just felt like a burden on society that had no more value in life. And I wasn't telling people about it. I wasn't talking about it. I was still trying to keep that facade going. But I couldn't go out in public to a basketball game. And the only thing I could call success was that I didn't do it that day. You know, totally miserable, had no hope in sight. But that's one thing I want to encourage whoever's in that place. Talking about coming here, I felt like a failure again. Every time I go back to that place and I get knocked down, I just, it's frustrating. And I think, why am I not ever going to get this? And I, and I'm embarrassed about it and ashamed. But then I'm trying to learn to also be proud of myself when I win, when I show up. I'm here today. And that's a win. And it's when you quit, when you lose, when you cash it in, when you, I mean, look at this foundation, all the amazing people that are doing so much. But pride will hold you back from that. If you if you don't swallow your pride and say, I'm willing to do anything. If I could fix it, I wouldn't be here. And I need help. And that's what I would ask everybody to do is to just do that. And you don't have to go around. I, there's something else I want to mention. When I was in the military, I was already getting my counseling towards the end when I was going to get out. And I was doing EMDR. <laughs> Guys like, write down your worst five traumatic. I'm like, there's five? <laughs> okay. I'll pick one. You know? And I was going through that process, but I talked, and, and it helped a lot. And um, and I asked the guy, I said, um, hey, I want to talk to you about something because it's an issue I have, and I don't want to have it, but if I'm being honest, I'll, I do have it. And it was the fact that a lot of EOD techs, they don't want to talk to civilian counselors or doc. What do they know about what I've been through? You know? Well, the doctor doesn't have to break his leg to know how to fix your leg, you know? And it doesn't matter how you got there. I work with people that they, um, maybe they're just depressed, you know? 19 year old kid I'm talking to, working with, and he's like, yeah, but I hadn't been going through all that, you know? And I'm like, it doesn't matter how you got there. It feels the same. It feels the same whether it's whatever the reason is. But I, but I told him, I said, when I see people that we would call fobbits, you know, that whatever their logistics or whatever their job is, admin. And, and so they go to the big bases. They never leave the wire. They've never thought they were going to die, you know, and they come back and, oh, I got PTSD or 
this moral injury or whatever it is. And I said, I don't want to be judgmental, but if I'm being honest, I think, you want to compare trauma, dude? I said, but I don't want to feel that way because it's not ours to judge, but that's how I feel. And he said, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me give you an example. He said, I have a guy I'm working with, and he's that guy you're describing. He said, the only thing that ever happened was the air raids, you know? And he said, but when he was a kid, his father was an alcoholic. And he used to abuse him regularly. And he would come home and he would lock him in his closet. And then when he would open the door, he would do terrible things to that young man. So it wasn't necessarily the situation, but it was the trigger that when the air sirens went on, he had to go to this bunker until somebody came and got him and let him go. So his trauma was back there that this brought out. And I thought, thank you. You know, because I grew up pretty good with a good family, a good support group. I had advantages and opportunities in that way that they didn't have. And so it's just another thing I want to say. Don't compare our traumas. It doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter what it's from. But I just want to encourage you. If you're listening to this and when I talk to people, I don't ask them questions about what they're going through or what's going on. I just start telling my story. I'll give them an example of this is how I felt and here I'm crying and what's going on with me and lost, you know, all this because I know they're going, yep, yep. Because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when they can relate to you, and there's a lot of people that care, and there's a lot of help out there. But we, as the ones going through it, need to tell your story. My cousin told me once, if you don't say it, nobody will hear. That's why I showed up, because this is my story. And if I say it, and one person hears it, and then they take that step or they don't quit. So long as you don't quit, you're winning. You know, it doesn't feel like winning. So my message is just to encourage that. And it's it's a lifelong thing. I have a new normal. I can't live my life the way I did before. But when they talk about post-traumatic growth, I have grown in ways I didn't have to grow before because I didn't need to. I just lived my life. I didn't have to have coping strategies. I didn't have to know how to read my body so well. I didn't have to have a routine that included good sleep hygiene, all these things. But there is hope, and it can be done. And I'm alive and grateful, and I just want to encourage anybody that's going through that to not to give up, reach out, share your story, tell somebody. If you don't say it, they won't hear it. Thank you. Jolene, thank you. 
It's my emotional support human. Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn this back over to Marie in just a second, but I wanted to say one more thing. Uh, um, we like that abound in our community, and they're all different, but they're all similar. And your words are profound, so thank you. We all need each other. We all need to help. So that brings me back around as time comes out. The next few months, as we bring out more information about this study, people are going to wonder, well, why should I help with your study? Um, it's because maybe you weren't affected ideally, or you don't, don't think you're one of those people, but you know a Ray or somebody similar. If you won't, if you aren't in need yourself or you don't perceive you are, you may be wrong, but even so, you know somebody who does need help. So we're going to be reaching out to everybody. We need everybody to respond from all areas. And you know, over the next few months, more information will be coming now. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you for everybody participating. Ahead of time, I got to say it now because I'm going to keep bugging everybody that I can over the next few months to a year or however long it takes. But, um, Jeff, do you want to say anything at all? I'll give you the opportunity. Um, I hadn't planned much, um, but I wanted to share a note uh, from Brent Jones to Ray, and I wrote it down for you. Um, you win. You won. You won today. Yeah. So this is from that's one of the comments from June. So thank you. I'm gonna turn this back over to you, Maria. You're on the spot. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I think uh, I just want to thank everybody so much for coming and for hearing our stories and listening to what we're trying to do at the foundation in removing the stigma surrounding mental health. It's an important mission um, that we we are passionate about. And I want anybody listening and everybody here to know um, that at the foundation, please consider us a resource um, for the community, for everybody out there that, that needs help, maybe you need guidance, maybe you need to learn about different programs that are available because they're out there, that programs for uh, traumatic brain injury, a PTSD, um, moral injury is kind of new, but there's different organizations that want to help, that can help, um, and we can help connect you to them. So um, this series is important to us. I, I'm hoping that it will continue into 2023 and, um, and that we can help get the word out and help others that need the help out there to be comfortable and to know that people like Ray White are going through the same thing and they were brave enough to admit that they have a problem and get the help that they need. So that, that's a message that we want to get out to the community. Um, and especially thank you, MC and Matt, for everything that you're doing in, in the research aspect of it. And I want to thank um, Jeff Truex for everything that you're doing with, with After the Long Walk. So um, I think maybe if we want to take a little bit of break um, and then we're going to come back and have a, a question and answer session where anybody can ask any of our speakers today questions. Um, and also we encourage anybody on Zoom to ask questions as well. So thank you so much, everyone. Okay, and I think I think what I'd really like to do is um, to bring up our guest speakers, um, all to stand up here in front, and that way people can ask whatever questions they might have, and including including people that are still with us on Zoom. So I think Jeff is going to facilitate any questions from our Zoom attendees. <laughs> 
So, um, I wonder, have they done any research on, like, if moral injury and post-traumatic stress, if there's any correlation to, like, number of deployments or um, back-to-back deployments, anything like that? I was talking with a Navy, very old person who said, like, oh, it's terrible that they send these people, like, you know, three, four deployments. That they used to just do one deployment. And was it easier to get over if it's just one deployment? So, can I restate to make sure I got it right? Um, so, if I'm hearing you, Jolene, one of the things is have they done research that's correlated like uh, PTSD, moral injury, with the number of deployments and what seems to help based on um, that research? Did I get you? Yes. Yeah, so this is what this is the struggle that we're facing. That I'm going to recommend something that is a little bit controversial, but it's not. And that is, we need to have a little bit more open source when it comes to that type of thing because the, the DoD does a fantastic job in researching and understanding their people. The, the disconnect is that there are literally zero, as of the last time you did your research on EBSCO, open source um, uh, publications in a peer-reviewed journal on EOD tech-specific correlated with PTSD and moral injury and that type of thing, so exposure. And so what we're hoping that we can do is Come one, come all. Um, if we could just encourage anybody and everybody to participate in this research because we get it. There's reasons of national security that we want to protect those who serve in uniform, and we don't want to give the bad guys any advantages over us. Having said that, for those that are home, for the veterans who are now, you know, that's it. They have served their time. We need to get better resources to non-VA, non-military, but absolutely concerned and caring individuals like you to be able to help those who are in the walls of your home. And so that would be one of our goals. Is that right, Greg, that we want to be able to be the first um, study that can do something like that? So. I would say one of the best things to do on something like that, and I hope maybe this could create some dialogue between, say, DOD researchers and civilian researchers, is what can be appropriate that can be put out there that can be helpful that's also not, you know, showing vulnerabilities and risk that we don't want to have as to then the bad guys can get in and hurt our veterans or those who are currently serving. So the long answer to that question is, 
based on our lit reviews search, there's not a lot of research specifically for EOD techs and their dependence on how to handle multiple deployments and how strongly correlated that is with moral injury. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. I have a question for you. <clears throat> how is an understanding of uh, moral injury change or formulate in any way how the folks that act in the long walk would react to phone calls? That's really We really, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, Really, it, it, it kind of blends. Um, we're being, you know, the, the initial response, moral injury is two words put together that I really haven't focused on before. Um, so I'm learning more about it now. And now knowing more of a difference, um, just the, I wrote down in my notes, um, just the word, I'm so angry. Um, and a lot of the times, Jerbo can, can, uh, can uh, back me up on it. The guy who calls, you know, he'll say, I'm just so angry or shit. I'm so angry at something. So we've been kind of focusing as, as, a, as a more of a PTS than moral injury. So knowing the difference can, can either, it can definitely help us, um, find a different modality for help for them. Um, knowing who to call for follow up. So identifying that, that moral injury will really help us out a lot. What's your perception on that? MC or Matt? You know what? Um, so, Matt, I'll answer after you since you have been in the literature because I have a hunch that you've been in the literature. Um, I mean, for, for me, understanding what moral injury is from a personal standpoint, I guess like I shared, um, seeing it throughout my career but not knowing what it was has, been able, has enabled me to start seeing it in places that I hadn't seen it before. And I'm not talking about just within the military context. I mean, you can pull up any war movie you want, you're going to see more injury in it. I mean, perfect example, you can see Black Hawk Down after that sergeant's talk with the Delta operator, like, hey, they should have sent a medevac to my wounded guy. It's like, you can't control that type of thing. You can't control, it's like, that's just the chaos of war. You can't control who falls out of a helicopter or wives. If you've led your men this far, you can, it's like, let's see how far you can take them to the end. And so, Seems like that, I mean, not to get like super pop culture, like even watching the Avengers, there's scenes of moral injury within Marvel movies that I've started to pick up on and starting to recognize where those patterns show up and how we can say, okay, that's not someone who's, that's not a PTSD incident. That's a moral injury, or that could be a moral injury. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, for me, that's been very helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, agree that it's with any phenomenon that's deadly. And let's not in any way um, equivocate in any manner. It's my opinion that this is the most lethal agent of destruction to face the United States military and the history of the United States military warfare. I think that this is one that it's an invisible agent of destruction that uh, is able to be multivectorial. And as such, what that means is one of the best things we've got to do is just take a lesson um, from unconventional warfare. We've got to first identify that enemy, and we've got to identify what parameters the enemy is working in, and then we've got to understand the patterns of, 
the way that enemy functions. And the reason why I say that moral injury is one of the most dangerous to enemies is because in our research, when an individual is hit with moral injury, it's not a secondary or follow-on effect with the people around them. A moral injury creates another primary moral injury. So any nexus of relations with that individual who's suffering from it, they get their own primary moral injuries because this is a matter of what it means to be a human being interacting with other human beings and how they feel. So the way that I think, um, just a hunch, and I'm going to have to learn more from Jeff and the community and not study uh, the literature, but my hunch is, is we're on the right track as a nation, particularly with the research they're doing uh, down at JSAL, and that with moral injury, if we can identify the threat, and if we can describe the threat, then we're aware of the threat. And if we're aware of the threat, then we can train for the threat. And if we can train for the threat, then everybody can be a type of first responder. And I just want to say, Chaplain Vanta, if you hear this, please know we miss you, sir, and we hope you feel better. One of the things that Chaplain Van is on our research team, um, he brought up is he said, we've got to be very careful as we deal with this phenomenon and saying everybody can be a burst responder because we don't want people to make it worse, right? In the same way, Jeff, that there are things that people can say that could trigger people. But the, the mere fact that we could identify and say, hey, this person's feeling guilt, anger, and shame, and it's not me, it's something that they're trying to process, that's, a, that's, a, that's already an important distinction because that might allow some social support to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. And then the second thing I would say, Greg, is that it can change a modality of intervention because like the example from the Civil War you used, um, I was sitting and talking with uh, two individuals. Remind me of your names again. John. John. Amanda. John and Amanda. And John's an ego tech and Amanda is his... What is it? Emotional support. Emotional support. <laughs> so, so, so with that in mind, and we were talking about this great example from the Civil War with Joshua Chamberlain, who, for those who don't know, um, he was an amazing, good example of good example for leadership. And Colonel Chamberlain and his Sergeant Major and his main contingent were going from Maine down to Gettysburg. And as they were going down to Gettysburg, Colonel Chamberlain was actually wrestling with a soul wound. And as he was wrestling with the soul wound, he sat down and he talked with his sergeant major and he said, I can't do this. I can't take my boys to war. I can't. No, this is too much death. This is too much. I can't do this. And now, if you can imagine in today's military, I, I can't imagine this, but that would not be a good thing to have a person who has an, a really important group and then say, I can't do this. So the sergeant major just listened. That senior NCO, he just listened. No judgment. No, you crazy dude. You need to do what you're going to do or I'm going to shoot you because you're a traitor. No, he listened to him. And then he said, do I hear you? And then the colonel, he said, yes, you do. And then they started calling each other by first name and became human beings. And in apparently a thick Irish accent, the sergeant major said to Colonel Chamberlain, well, 
What if we don't go? How many more boys will die? What if we don't go and this guilt and anger and shame that you're feeling is compounded? And Colonel Chamberlain just thought on that idea and he let it sit and the Sergeant Major didn't press it. But within that evening, Colonel Chamberlain came to the Sergeant Major and said, we're going. Thank you. And they got back to calling each other by rank. And they went. And if anybody doesn't know this story, please, please, this is such a cool story. I don't care if you're a civilian, if you're military, it's such a cool story. But Colonel Chamberlain and that Sergeant Major defended Little Round Top. And if Little Round Top would have been flanked, the Union would have lost Gettysburg and potentially Gettysburg. And afterwards, the Union would have lost. Well, that was a soul wound that was dealt with in one evening that not only led to that individual with the soul wound not only not having it, but having greater ethical courage, greater integrity, and just a profound aspect of leadership that was missing that needed to happen because he had to save fixed bayonets. And from an individual who I very much respect, who was 11 Bravo during the Cold War, who had fast drove into Berlin, he told me, MC, if you don't understand the significance of fixed bayonets in military history, that's it. That's the last thing you do because you're most likely going to die. So can you imagine Colonel Chamberlain with a soul wound going from not wanting to have anything to do with it so he gave the order for fixed bayonets and went with his people. So what if that could happen in our military community? What if they allow awesome, awesome human beings, veterans like Ray, to say, hey, this is your soul talking with an EOD tech who's not wanting to be an EOD tech anymore. Let's, let's, let's hear each other. Let's sit with each other. And then that EOD tech is more at peace more secure in who they are as a human being, and they stay in the tech. Because we need everybody we've got right now. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the numbers, but I stink with them. That's why Sarah does the finances. But the main thing is, is we're like 20,000 down in Army with retention. We need the people we have. And many of the people that we have are hiding this because they don't want us out of motion. They don't miss out on music. But what if that's just part of what it means to be a human being and we shouldn't hold that against them? Let them be these demigods of the art, science, and practice of legality in their training, on the exercises, on their missions. But when they come home, when they're with Jolene, let them be a human being. Let them feel these emotions and not feel bad about it. Because I would argue that maybe some of these Maybe not to the extreme, but some of these emotions might be indicating that their consciousness is working, that there's still a, an aspect of humanity among them. You said something really powerful. If you don't feel what just happened today, you're a psychopath. Good for you for calling out. So that's how I think it might change modalities. It's just going to get people into the fight faster, recover faster, and if they don't want to be in the fight, Get them having a good life, as Chaplain Van would say. I don't want you guys, Chaplain, please don't get mad at me through time and space. But I think he would say, 
And his quote is, I want to help you guys live the rest of your lives. Here, here, can I ask a question? Aren't we kind of selling this to the wrong group of people right now? I, I agree we're looking for methodologies to pull this program together. Don't you believe that this probably ought to be started at the senior officer level and then brought down to like the EOD refresher level to bring supervisors and all the people in line with this EOD problem area and then bring it down to the individual areas. Like have a block in school later on about understanding yourself and your your people's problems a little bit better. That's a great uh, suggestion. Instead of, you know, pass it on the VA or pass it on the, the, the army can we can we uh, defer? And by the way, thank you for that comment. I think you're looking around the corner, sir. You can see it. You can see what's coming and how to make it work. I think that's what Greg is working on. If I'm not scooping you, so I mean, it's part of the process of where we're going. We still have people we're working with and talking to. Yeah, well, um, I'm hoping that you know you build into our own program, our, our own methodology. Relate to the problems. Now, as far as I know about suicides in the military, I spent 30 years in it, another 17, and we about 30 in the Air Force, another 17 working with the Army. I had zero <laughs> Air Force people commit suicide. I had, and I had no control over these. One active duty and one National Guard guy in the Army in Iraq committed suicide. Now, the rest of my guys made it out of there A-OK. Uh, and I, I, I don't really what's, uh, and, and this is against the whole American populace, the suicide rate is increasing, not just in the military. You know? yeah. What's going wrong? Yeah. You know, I, this is, you know, uh, and I don't think it's just a military problem. Sure, it's a, it's a big problem for us. We lose a lot of money when we lose group, you know, no matter which way you look at it. But there's more to it. Is it video games? I don't know. Is it, you know, super easy gratification and then total disaster against the individual if we fail somewhere along the line It makes them want to do what I call sewer side, you know, sewer side, or uh, is it something else? I, I I don't I don't know what the the button is or the push, and I'm sure a lot of other people if they if they knew what button to push, we would be all pushing it right now. Absolutely, we would absolutely push that button. <laughs> um, from from the standpoint of after a long walk, um, just the the breadth of the EOD community, we've had. Um, all four services call, all ages call. Um, there's, there's, there's been no. We, we haven't been able to like pinpoint the the, the cause of why. No. Um, and, and you know we're we're on we're on this side of the boulder right now and um, getting getting past it and and, and uh, uh, that that's the goal and I think the study that we're gonna uh, undertake. May may shed some light on how we 
where, where we find that button, whatever that button is, or at least, you know, what button works. But as far as from the leader's perspective, and he's talking about, like, I explained, like, my paradigm shift and that I want to be respected and people think they can follow me and all that. And, and, but I had a blind spot to the fact that I was making them feel worse because I'm trying to be like this guy and he's not like me. You know, they had that secret struggle and it's important that we change that paradigm to this isn't weakness. I'm showing strength by going to get help. Uh, and if you're going through that silently, first of all, I'm doing it so you can too. I've had soldiers say to me that I've worked with like, Hey, thanks for saying that because I don't feel so bad. I can go get help now too, you know, because if you're going through it, I can go through it. And I think that's really important for leaders to be able to have that shift that it's sitting a hindrance. I'm getting stronger. You go to the gym and work out and you're better for it. People don't say, well, you must be weak. Well, I'm getting stronger. That's why I'm there. That's why I'm taking these steps so that I can handle these situations when they arise. And, and if you don't, do it early and often and continue. It's, you know, I'll never quit doing this. You know, you talk about post-traumatic growth. Like I've had to grow in ways that I wouldn't have had to before because I didn't have to be able to read myself and understand. And then it helps me with empathy for other people and not judging other people and taking them for who they are and let, you know, from wherever we're at, let's get better. So, I, you know, I do think that's an important thing for leaders to, to do that. I think that would help a lot, you know. Well, it would help the leader understand it. And then it would help, it would help the soldiers get to that. <laughs> you know, that is an important step, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and that's the wrong coming from. It gets it down to yeah. a unit level, well, an AF club, military uh, skill level, <laughs> work skill level, 3OD that brings us closer together with a better understanding of what makes us all you know, and it, it, I think that's more of a problem than getting somebody else to understand what makes us tick and then trying to figure it out. You know, if we could get our group to understand. And, you know, we're, we're picking up knowledge here. Dave and I are outsiders. We just walked in on this because it's sound of interest, because we've had past experiences. But uh, we, we endorsed the program. Uh, I, I just don't know where we're going to, you know, where to fire it at, you know. Uh, I'm trying to give you a suggestion where you should shoot it at the school, shoot it at the training program, you know? get our people trained here to accept things that happen. Yeah, we're really good at teaching people how to take lives or save lives or face danger. We're not good at teaching people how to recover, you know. Well, hey, here's the same part of the process that you're going to have to go through later, mm -hmm. and it's important, you know. So that's mm -hmm. Sometimes we think about that soft versus hard skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Soft versus hard. That's a lot of qualifying yeah. 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 It's just, you know, it, it's there. <laughs> what was the session the other day there where we talked about we spend months and months, years even training people to go to war? Yeah. And we had nothing for how to bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. We, if we did that to a weapon system, a piece of hardware, it fail. Yeah. Yeah, and they talk about the total army soldier training to be a total soldier. We have gaps there. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, why don't we have financial training and basic training? Because outside of every base is every pawn shop or loan, loan rent your wheels, you know, like 
Right. Somebody got to tell you privates. If you're renting wheels, you you know you've got a problem, and this is where it's going to end. But we don't teach those basic life skills. If you want to be a total soldier, it's the whole package. Yeah. I've got two questions from uh, the guys on Zoom. One's from Mario. Um, he says the uh, the term uh, meaning making was used earlier. Would that include? Uh, does anybody have any readers I could borrow? Sorry, I'm old. That's so much better. So the term meeting making was used. Would that include uh, talking through tough experiences to see where the nuggets of wisdom or lessons learned could be extracted? And then Mario goes on to say, I agree, by the way, knowing one's purpose and or why is a great place to start. Great question, uh, Mario, and thanks for being with us. Yeah, this idea of meaning making, it doesn't have to be something rigorous or stilted, even though there's outstanding literature that comes uh, through the University of Michigan and Yale, if you're interested more in that. But it's basically just how do I take all these disparate parts, bring them together and say, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? And so, yeah, any sort of discussion that happens back and forth. One of the members of our research team is in here right now. Um, he's a holy man in the Lakota tribe. And uh, one of the things that we're working on right now is looking at ancient warrior rituals and how ancient warriors made sense after the war that they had to conduct and then coming back to the tribe, but they couldn't immediately rematriculate into the tribe. What they had to do is they had to sit with each other. And maybe there wasn't a lot of talking that went on, not a lot of depth, not a lot of detail, but there was just enough so that each understood we just did something, something really intense. What does that mean to me? now that I'm coming back into a different society. And so, yeah, Mario, your question is on point. And I would say, um, if, if that's something that you can feel comfortable and it's with the person with the right clearances who you know that you're communicating with, that you're not talking about stuff that you shouldn't talk about with people who shouldn't know, but just maybe a fellow EID tech or somebody who you trust, maybe another veteran who has that similar experience, then you could do what's called creating shared. And what I think Ray did today, that is a perfect example of meaning making, is he said initially when I was there and I had to put everything into a box, my meaning was I am a EID tech who is making the place safe. But then when he went back and he's sitting by himself and he felt those emotions and he wrote that poem, that's a different set of meanings. That's grief. That's anger. That's guilt. That's shame. That's all these other things that kicked in. And he's now shaping that and making sense of that. And even as he was reading his poem, he was converting that meaning from something horrific. It's almost like he, he was having a spiritual transformation, not religion, just a spiritual transformation, where he was basically saying, I feel 
like I'm not a good human being. I need to feel like a what needs to happen for me to be a good human being and still a good human tech? Did you notice how at the very end he was like, please help me. Please help me stay. I'm not going to quit. That was a perfect example of creating meaning, meaning making individually on his own. So any conversations, whether it be with yourself or others, just don't talk to this guy too much or you might get judged. So, and I don't want you being judged. <laughs> the second question. You're looking for a self Wow. The bottom line. And yeah. this is, again, is going to have to be put in a training program to make people aware of this. I 100% agree. Greg was communicating with this philosopher. He used to be a commander of the Air Force Gloss. So thanks, Martin. The uh, second question online from uh, John Clem. Um, while conducting research, has alcohol within the EOD community raised any red flags? So we're not that far yet. Yeah, <laughs> we're not, yeah, we're not that far yet. Right, right now, it's mainly about just getting to understand the socio-cultural aspects of what it means to go from being a civilian to becoming an EID tech to becoming a seasoned EID tech to then returning home and separating. So anything that anybody in the audience right now wants to be sending to us that you think is helpful that captures your experience of, hey, this is these are some possibilities. Just please do because we're open. It's a it's a data gathering phase at this point. I don't think there'd be any mystery what the outcome of that would be as far as uh, yeah, as alcohol make it worse. I mean, which, without a doubt, it, it it's it's all about coping mechanisms, and there's good ones and there's bad ones. And it, it alcohol makes me more of what I am in that moment. If I'm good, it's good. When I'm bad, it's bad. And just like, but it could be gambling, it could be risk-taking, it could be thrill-seeking, danger, whatever, you know, like, yes, that's going to be a bad coping mechanism. If I go to that over meditation or, you know, exercise or something like that. So I think that would be a pretty obvious outcome for that study. Okay. So he's an EOD tech. I would listen to him. <laughs> Amen. I have a question. So if somebody is listening um, to the Zoom or watches this later at any time that somebody might hear it and they're an EOD tech that is having issues and struggling but have no idea how to get help, what would your advice be to them? Well, I would have them call the hotline after the long walk. What's that number, Jeff? <laughs> um, <laughs> on your screen here. Um, but to reach out, I can tell you a struggle I have, and it's not unique to me. I think it's every tech. And I'm better now about like telling my story after the fact. I think it's important and it makes a difference. I'm not good at it when I'm in the middle of it. Um, my wife will tell you, you know, I, it comes out in other ways, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know what the hurdle there is other than shame or pride again, 
that we, when I'm in the middle of the crisis, I don't talk about it, but I'll talk about it afterwards. But that's that's critical. I mean, there's been times that if I didn't have people around me, if I was alone the day my wife came in and I had the gun sitting on the bed sobbing and not reaching out to somebody because I wasn't reaching out to her, I was isolating. I was doing the wrong things. And but that's a hurdle that it's critical, you know, and and so I worry about people that don't have that support group, you know, or that somebody that's going to be there, something to get up for somewhere, you know, like somebody that's going to check on you. And and it's it, it's a very important coping skill that we need to get to. And I have gotten better at that. I've reached out to other people that uh, know my story and I trust and say, hey, you know, I need to, I just need to tell you about this. You know, I'm not looking for answers or anything. Just somebody listen to me. Because when you speak it and talk about it, it takes it away. EMDR training was one of the first things I did, you know. And, and at first, he was explaining how it worked. And I'm like, well, I don't want to not feel these emotions for these people, you know. And uh, he explained that it's not really like that. It's just it won't take your life over you know, you'll, I still feel, I still proud when I tell the stories, but it doesn't take my life over. It doesn't take me down that rabbit hole that's so dangerous. And so, yeah, super important to, to reach out, call that. I mean, there's what people can't say when, when I get mad is when like I talk to fellow soldiers, they're going through it and there's like, I don't have the help. The hell you don't. The help is out there. Like, if you want help, the help is out there. It's just, you got to leave that pride back. You got to humble yourself. You've got to admit it and ask for help, you know, and and it is out there. So I think making a local connection is also helpful um, when it comes to, to running into trouble. And calling the hotline is great. It's a great start. Um, we're, we're just DOD techs and to, uh, one of, uh, MC's points is, um, you know, peer to peer conversation. The, the example of Lakota Indians just sitting there, whether, whether or not a word was spoken or not, it doesn't matter. You, you had that time with your peers and, and a lot of, lot, a lot of spoken in silence. Um, you can just stare at somebody, you'll feel them. So getting a local connection, um, doing something with the guys that are in your area. Uh, with your shop, um, to the video games, you know, there, there's a social aspect to video games, but it's also, uh, isolation as well, uh, where you get into that game and there's been magical things done with video gaming groups. And we have an EOD tech who leads, we have several techs that lead groups and they've, they've met up and they have, that's their support group, but it can also isolate. So find your support group, whatever it is. Is it a Dungeons and Dragons table? Is it a video game? Is we're fishing, yeah. hunting, drinking at the bar, um, to a point, um, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And, and if you can't find something that's happening in your area, plan it, do it yourself. Um, I've said a hundred times, if you plan it, they will come. And, you know, this room half full of people and a zoom half full of people, um, it's proof. If you plan something, they'll come. And then the second time more will come and the third time, et cetera, et cetera. So if, just, just talk to your, talk to your, talk to your guys. There's nobody that knows what's going on to an EOD tech's mind better than an EOD tech. 
Um, so just talk to people. Question. Is this all for services goal? This project? I'm sorry, a little louder. Is it all four or five service goals that become involved in this project? So our goal is to focus from what my understanding, and I'll defer to Greg on this, but we are micro-focusing on EOD techs. Yeah. But from all branches. Base for that many issues. I'm sure they're they're coming. Yes, is that this is going to involve all the UD techs of all services, all eras, uh, regardless. And then, you know, ultimately, we hope to have, and we're still working with the individual service appropriate agencies to get their bodies. But the ultimate goal of the project is for the foundation uses to be able to enable us to provide better services and better support to the community. We'll report have other information that may well be a benefit that we will hope the service would use. Yes, but obviously we don't tell the service no, that way. We provide them what we garner out of this. Jeff, can I throw something to the people who might be listening? Sure. So for those of you who are still there, I just wanted to add something from a different research project prior to this that had to do with meaning making and soul wounds that um, if you are dealing with one, um, there is an insidious situation that happens where you begin to believe the lie that my family is better off without me, my friends are better off without me, the world is better off without me. When you feel that, please don't believe that lie. And the second thing is this, is that there is a truth that when it comes to if you think of somebody in your life, a fellow EID tech, I don't care if it's a random thought. What has really happened repeatedly, and I have no scientific reason for this, but I can't tell you how many times in a previous research project that individuals would let our research team know, I thought of this friend and I reached out to this friend and it was, it was important. So if I could issue you a challenge, and I know this is going to sound very ascientific and don't read religion into this because I have my own struggles with faith. But I do believe that some things can cut across time and space because I understand a little bit of theoretical physics. If you get the idea, if you have somebody's name come across your reader board, if you think of a human being in the EOD tech community, reach out to them. Just do it. Just say, hey, I was just thinking about you. Just check in. Just do it. And I can tell you right now, there's something to it. And I don't know how to measure it. I don't know how to quantify it, but it's real. Don't ignore it. Any more questions? 
Well, I, I want to say I think it's been a wonderful event. And thank you guys so much for being part of it. Thank you for coming. I think. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is going to bring great things for the community. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast brought to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. The EOD Warrior Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization serving the EOD community by providing financial assistance, scholarships, and providing hope and wellness resources for the active duty, reserve, National Guard, retired, and veteran EOD communities and their families. We also honor our fallen and wounded EOD technicians by maintaining the EOD Memorial and Remembrance Garden. We do all this through the generosity of individual and corporate donors and sponsors. If you would like to assist the foundation or support our Behind the Warrior podcast, click the link on our webpage at eodwarriorfoundation.org or contact us at info at eodwarriorfoundation.org. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tell a friend. The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers.